So we're here today with Sue Page, who's the CEO of Life Labs, for another in our series of Are We There Yet? Women, Position, and Power. So good morning, Sue, and thank you so much for making the time to be here with us today. I know how busy you are, but I'm sure that um, this interview is going to be certainly of great interest to me, but of great interest to all of our listeners and readers. So thank you again for making the time to be with us today. It's a treat to be able to do this, a real treat. Well, great. So um, I'd like to start off by just um, sort of asking you a little bit about your journey and how you got here as, you know, to be CEO of Life Labs at this point. Well, it's been an unusual journey, and I think most women who are in a, a senior leadership role these days have, have taken uh, a unique and very personal journey. Uh, I, I think it's, we're still uh, at a time when women uh, take, their own, take their own course to find, uh, to find a senior leadership role. So I actually uh, started uh, practicing law in the early 80s and, uh, and practiced law for 20-odd years. Uh, and then moved into management of the law firm. I was very fortunate to be part of a law firm uh, at the time, Russell and Dumoulin, now Fask and Martineau, uh, that I think was and probably still is very progressive when it comes to questions of, uh, of promoting and helping people develop their careers. So I was fortunate enough to uh, be asked to be involved in management and became managing partner of the firm right at the time that we affected uh, the merger of Russell and Dumoulin with two other firms to create Faskins and uh, stayed in that position for six years, which was the maximum term. It was an elected, uh, an elected position with a maximum term of, uh, of six years. And, uh, and then at the end of that, um, at the ripe old age of less than 50, I won't say what age, uh, <laughs> I, I did... I, I started to wonder what I wanted to do because the normal trajectory for uh, men in the law in the law firms who had become managing partner was retirement, and I was nowhere near ready or interested for that. Uh, and decided that I didn't want to wake up when I was fifty and wonder what it would be like doing something else. I, I loved the law firm. I loved the legal industry. I loved the leadership of the law firm, uh, and I had never known anything other than the legal sector uh, in my career, so I decided I would do, quote-unquote, something else, decided to leave the firm, and didn't know what I was going to do at that time. So uh, a lot of people uh, really did think that I I had rocks in my head, uh, leaving, deciding to leave the firm and not uh, having a place to go. Uh, The firm was incredibly supportive, uh, a little bit apprehensive, I think, when I said I was going to leave, because they thought I was going to go to a Competitive in a competitive environment, uh, and I put my name out there uh, with uh, people that I know, uh, the network that I have, and I must say I was um, really surprised to find out what people thought I could and could not do, uh, and had lots and lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities, and I ended up uh, going to Pharmasafe, the uh, drugstore retail chain, and. Uh, and was CEO at, uh, at Pharmasave for five years. And during uh, my time at Pharmasave, I also sat on the board of Life Labs. And, uh, and Life Labs approached me in uh, the tail end of 2011, I guess, early 2012, and asked if I would be interested to, uh, to take on this role. And uh, I, knew, I knew enough about both the organization and its ownership uh, and the sector. Uh, to know that it was going to be a hugely exciting and challenging opportunity. 
Okay, thank you. Now, how has gender, the fact that obviously you're a woman, affected your career progression? Do you think it's helped or hindered? And if so, how? You know, I get that question. I, I get that question asked a lot, and I should probably have a response prepared <laughs> for it, but I never do, because I am always somewhat surprised when someone raises it. Uh, I, I hope I'm not naive or delusional in thinking that it hasn't affected me, uh, with one exception, and that is on the family front, uh, because as we all know, it's 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 the women that have the children, and I had three children in four years. And, uh, and so that did take me, quote-unquote, out of circulation uh, for a period of time there. And I think at the time, there were some folks in the law firm. I was an associate in the law firm at the time. I actually deferred my partnership. The first I think I was the first person to decline partnership at, uh, at the law firm. And I declined the partnership because I was, think about seven and a half months pregnant when, off, when the offer was made and I was pregnant with my second child and for those of us that, that have had a small toddler at home and then uh, another one on the way you know the uh, degree of excitement combined with sheer terror that uh, runs through the veins of young mothers and I was one of those wondering what I was going to do with two little children um, let alone considering being a partner so I, I deferred my partnership well I declined actually uh, because uh, I didn't know deferral was possible. Uh, and that caused some ripples in the firm. That caused some considerable ripples in the firm because the firm, I think, was very concerned that maybe I declined partnership uh, for reasons that were associated with the firm, and that was not true. They were totally my uh, personal reasons in our family, uh, reasons around having two very small children. Uh, and, and I then became a partner later, um, that was the only time I'd say that gender really affected me, other than the obvious one, which is for most of my life I've been the only girl in the room, mm-hmm. whether it's the executive committee at the law firm, whether it's the managing partners conference uh, in, uh, uh, for law firms in, in Canada, uh, whether it's sitting at a board table, etc. I've m- nearly always been the only, the only I, say, I, I always say I've nearly always been the only girl in the room, um, I will, however, say that in both of the management teams that I have built in, in the business world, um, I have been fortunate to have some exceptionally talented women on my team, in part because they were there when I arrived and in part because I've hired them. Okay. Uh, but other than that, um, I honestly can't say that gender has been an issue for me, and maybe that's because I've, I've never recognized it as an issue. I don't look at it. Which is interesting because I know some of your personal history in the law firm, you were working in uh, employment and human rights law. Mm-hmm. So you obviously saw a lot of gender issues in your practice, mm-hmm. and yet it hasn't colored your experience, your, work, your own work experience. You know, I grew up uh, in, an, in a somewhat unusual environment. I grew up uh, in a family where uh, my mom was the, the leader of the household, oh. uh, no questions asked, and... Uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people uh, talk about my my work habits. I tend to work uh, long hours, and I look back at my mom, who uh, who was raising four children, teaching full time, and doing a university degree all at the same time. Wow! And uh, so so I, I've perhaps had my head uh, down a little bit. So I you know I've never looked at that for uh, as an issue. 
Um, and then, and then three other things. Uh, again, part of growing up, uh, I spent two and a half years on my own in England when I was ten years old, uh, going to school and uh, not going to school at a boarding school, but going to school in three different public schools, uh, traveling around the countryside, living with different relatives, having zero contact with my family. Uh, in Canada, this was in the 60s, and wow. I can tell by the look on your face right now that you're surprised by that. Most people are, uh, and it's a bit of a defining moment in a 10-year-old's life that carries you forward. You become pretty independent, you become mm-hmm. pretty motivated uh, and self-sufficient. Uh, secondly, our family ran a ranch in uh, northern BC, and so when I came back from England, um, my summers were spent probably three or four years in a row, maybe more, uh, working out on the ranch, uh, completely surrounded by guys, and uh, it was a hunting and uh, guiding uh, uh, outfitters, and I was a camp cook and a wrangler, and... uh, and you're definitely the only woman there. And when you're out, in, when you're out in the middle of nowhere with um, a pack train of five or eight horses, heading to a flying camp uh, in the middle of, of northern British Columbia in the 1970s, you better be able to do all of the jobs that everybody else does. So, and and the the guys, the cowboys, um, and uh, we had a lot of First Nations people working with us as well. Um, gender was gender was not an issue there either when it came to doing the job. You know, you had to fix the fence, you had to get the pack horses going, you had to get the horses out in the morning, and and you had to make sure that your guests had a good experience. And then in the early '80s, I did a couple of uh, summers with General Motors, and I was uh, I, I was assigned for reasons unbeknownst to me. Uh, to the labor relations department in uh, the General Motors fabrication plant in Oshawa, uh, where I was the first woman to work the floor of the fact the fabrication plant uh, in a labor relations context. And um, if anybody's been in assembly plants, uh, well, back in the 80s, they were quite different than they are now. To be, uh, I think it was 18 or 19 at the time, uh, and to walk the floor of the of the fab plant uh, as a labor relations officer, girl wearing a little white dress and um, totally inappropriate footwear. <laughs> um, I learned to wear work boots and uh, hard hat, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, you just learn to just get the job done and not look for other issues. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I've learned from day one: is just get the job done and do your very best. And don't look for extraneous issues. And if extraneous issues arrive, deal with them. Don't become a victim. I've never wanted to be a victim. I've never wanted to be that person that is um, is not seen as one who's 110% committed to getting the right job, the job done right and getting the right job done. That's what I've always focused on. Okay. Really interesting, <laughs> interesting background. Um, so I first started getting interested in this topic of women in power when I was um, asked to present the closing keynote for the Wealth Academy for Women um, in Vancouver, and this was a couple of years ago now, and I was asked to speak on the topic of women in power. As part of my preparation, I googled women in power, and here's the first quote that came up. Powerful women are either sexually voracious rulers like Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I, or treacherous bitches like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. 
Now, you are a woman in a position of power, and I'd love if you could share some thoughts on the reality of being a woman in a position of power, given the stereotypes and biases that are out there. And what tips might you have for young women contemplating working their up their way up the corporate power hierarchy in terms of negotiating maybe some of these stereotypes that they might encounter? Well, I would hope that if you Googled that, uh, that topic again, there would be a few examples more recent than 600 years ago. Uh, because maybe 600 years ago, uh, that's what you needed. Maybe even 60 years ago, that's what you, you needed. You needed those characteristics. You don't need it now. And, and I actually get, uh, I, I am concerned when those kinds of things come forward and we think that's what you need. And as I mentioned a moment ago, um, I, I think whether you're, whether you're male, female, tall, short, old, young, uh, Caucasian or non-Caucasian, uh, if you focus on what you want to do with your life, it doesn't matter what your demographic makeup is. And, and some people may be rolling their eyes right now and saying that I haven't lived in the real world. Um, but it's my own, my own experience is, um, yes, absolutely, there are people out there who don't think that women should be in leadership roles. Um, there were lots of them out there in the 80s. I had lots of stones thrown, thrown over the fence at me. I had lots of people patting me on the head saying, yes, you know, very nice that you have those ideas, but let's get real. Um, I, I remember uh, saying one time in, a, in an interview when I was in university, that I wanted to be the CEO of a particular company. That's what I wanted to be back when I was you know, mm-hmm. 17, 18. And, uh, and having the interviewers laugh out loud, literally laugh out loud at me. And rather than, rather than cocoon myself and think, oh, you know, I guess I can't do that, I thought to myself, well, I'm not working for this company, I guess, and moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, the, so first of all, I, I think those examples of Catherine the Great, Cleopatra, Elizabeth I, etc., great that's history that's not today and it's not tomorrow and if we get ourselves all wrapped up in those kinds of historical things we are probably not going to be very happy uh secondly i i say this to lots of young women and young men because i think young men have a tremendous amount of pressure on them these days as well uh, because the the kinds of equity issues that women and and other uh perhaps um minority groups in leadership are, are dealing with right now have an impact on men as well. And so one of the things I say uh, to anyone is decide what you want to have in your life. Decide what's important for you. Don't live somebody else's life. I, I actually was very worried when I was in the uh, law firm context and um, and in the management role, and I, and I saw lots and lots of young people coming out of law school who'd gone to law school because either that was in their family, that's what they thought they had to do, that's how what they thought that's that's what they thought was the path to uh, having wealth and, and uh, fame and fortune, etc, etc. Uh, and people who weren't in that role or in that, that pathway because that's what they wanted to do. And so one of the things I say to to people as, as early as you can, Decide what your values are and make sure that you live those values. And, and that's easy to say and it sounds very cliche in some ways, but man, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do when you're 19, 20, 21 
and you've got people telling you to write a career plan for the next 10 years and you've got people telling you you can't have children if you want to do this and and you can't take vacations if you're going to do that and if you're going in this line of work you better be prepared to you know burn out after 5 years decide what you want to do in life and and be deliberate about it and um Never hurt anybody else in your pathway. Don't step on people. Don't have your elbows up. Be the person that's easy to work with. Be the person that's easy to trust. Be the person that people want to be around. And the, the pathway will unfold for you. Uh, but you have to know what path you want. And not everybody needs to, nor should they want to, be a senior vice president or a CEO. It's absolutely fantastic and wonderful for somebody to choose a pathway that is very different from one that is vertical. And and that's the other thing I worry about is that we instill in young people these days, especially in women, this idea that if you really want to be somebody, then you better be on a vertical trajectory. Uh, And I think that puts incredible pressure on our children. And, And so my advice would be decide what you want in your life Understand that um, that some people will not agree with your path, and so be prepared to defend it. And uh, never ever harm anyone as you as you pursue your path. Um, never burn a bridge. And um, and understand the importance of of building strong positive relationships because that's what will p- propel you down the path much more than your own uh, your your own horsepower. Great. Now, you talked about your values and building trust. And mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit more about mm-hmm. maybe, you know, you don't have to share what your values are, or you could, but sort of with the importance of how, val- you know, mm-hmm. what the values mean mm-hmm. to you and then how you build trust as a leader, because mm-hmm. I think that's something that's challenging for mm-hmm. individuals in leadership positions. So, yeah, I mean, most people that know me aren't, aren't very surprised or, or doesn't take them long to figure out what my values are. Uh, Family is one, um, although my children might have a different perspective on this, and we've had number, numerous discussions on this in the last while because I've been uh, going pretty hard at the job. Uh, but everything I do, everything I do in my professional life is to build a better uh, life for my kids and, and Brad and our family. Um, Everything that I do in a slightly uh, more macro context is to build a better community and a better world for our kids' generation. I actually believe that. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds very cliche to some people, and um, uh, my kids and I were actually having two of our, my kids were having and I were having this conversation yesterday. You know, why why do you, you know, why do you work so hard on this? Why do you, why are you so focused on trying to do these kinds of things? And I said because I actually think I actually think. Maybe I'm delusional, um, but I believe that that through Life Labs and what we're doing right now, we can actually change the healthcare delivery system in Canada. We can actually make healthcare delivery in this little tiny sliver known as diagnostic labs. We can actually make it better for our kids, and in a very significant way, we can change the whole uh, diagnostic uh, part of healthcare. Um, in the next generation. I believe that. And um, so values, number one, is my family. And uh, I can give you a couple of examples of what I've done in that context. Um, at number two, I actually I actually believe in uh, 
making, quote-unquote, making a difference. And I've said this to lots of people. If, if we live in Canada, if we uh, come from families that support and care for us, if we have our health and if we're not worried about where we're going to get our next meal, we've won the lottery. In the context of the world, uh, we've won the lottery. And, and I believe we have a moral obligation to give back to our communities and our society in some ways, whether that's through uh, community engagement or whether that's through our life's work, i.e. our, our day-to-day job. Um, I believe in that. And uh, uh, it might surprise people, but I am not a person that gets up in the morning and wonders how much money I'm going to make at the end of the day. I, I definitely want to be compensated fairly, but I, I've never chased the dollar. Uh, much to the chagrin, perhaps, of, of the family, which uh, <laughs> wonder why why I, I haven't, but I haven't. Um, and uh, as I say, it's not to say that I don't think compensation is important. It is, but uh, but family values and and making a meaningful contribution to social good are two of my strongest values. In terms of the val- family values front, uh, a lot of people know this, but uh, back in. Uh, 2001, um, very shortly after I'd become managing partner at the law firm, my husband was uh, uh, working in the movie industry at the time, and uh, I know a lot of us lawyers, when we're in practice, we complain about our work hours, but I can tell you, the guys in the movie industry uh, work uh, astonishingly uh, demanding work hours, and uh, my husband and I were almost ships passing in the night if he was on a night shoot and I'd be heading off to work in the morning, we'd see each other in the driveway almost. And we had three, our three little girls. Uh, the oldest one at the time would have been, uh, I guess, 10, 10 or 11. And, uh, and we had a nanny, a wonderful nanny, uh, living with us. And one day, Brad was on a, a shoot out in, uh, I think, Pemberton or somewhere. And uh, I was in Ottawa and at a board meeting for Revenue Canada. And I got a note that our nanny had been taken to hospital. And uh, at that point, uh, uh, I had about two and a half hours before our youngest was coming out of kindergarten. And so we had kindergarten grade two and grade three. And uh, we have no family in Vancouver. We have no family anywhere uh, in the Lower Mainland. And at that point, I realized sitting in a boardroom in Ottawa, we didn't know our neighbors. We didn't know the, the ladies, the, the, the parents, the moms and dads at school. We didn't know the teachers very well, other than in a very en passant way. And it sort of hit me, like, what are we doing here? And so I flew back from Ottawa. We managed to get one of our nanny's friends to pick the girls up from school. And our nanny turned out to be fine. Um, and as I flew back from Ottawa, I wrote my resignation letter to the firm. And I decided, you know, I'm going I'm to stay home. And uh, when I got home, uh, Brad and I had a chat, and, and his view was a lot easier for him to stay home because the movie industry is sort of a contract right. basis. You work on a movie and then you... You work on another movie, and he thought it was much more practical uh, and pragmatic for him to finish the movie he was on and then and then stay home, uh, which almost sent me uh, onto the floor, rolling around, laughing. Um, <laughs> I, I overstated, uh, but Brad was not uh, what you would call the the domesticated male, the natural guy you choose to stay home. But why not? Uh, and so he stayed home, and he stayed home. Uh, he retired basically from uh, from uh, the movie industry and effectively raised our three girls uh, because I was doing a lot of traveling then for mm-hmm. the firm and, and obviously had a, a, a pretty full on job. Uh, 
And so that was, that was a decision we made as a family, that we, we realized we didn't have children to have somebody else raise them and to not be a daily part of their lives growing up. And while that sounds like a somewhat simple, fairly practical decision to make at the time, some of the comments that we got were mine in terms of what people thought of that decision. Some, some laughed and joked and thought Brad had sort of hit the jackpot, but others were quite cruel and critical about, really? um, uh, about family values and why on earth would you make a decision that would have the husband stay home? Don't you understand your role as mother? And don't you feel really guilty now? That um, You must have felt guilty before, but don't you feel really guilty now that your husband's staying home? You know, those kinds of comments. Mm-hmm. We got a fair bit. And... Uh, and I go back to my earlier comment about knowing what you want to do with your life and just being deliberate about it. Mm-hmm. So there's an example. Okay. Now that segues nicely into my next question, which is that research clearly supports that having children is a career liability for women that want to move up into the C-suite. Um, and so you've sort of shared how you, how you coped with this, but how do you feel about this reality? Um, in terms of the choice to have children and how that can affect your career progression. And what thoughts do you have about how to address this issue so that the playing field can be truly equalized? Or do you think that it's really possible that the playing field can be equalized given the biological difference between the sexes? Well, I come back to what I said earlier. Uh, You've got to decide what you want in your life. Don't let anybody else decide that for you. Don't, don't, for goodness sake, don't let your career determine when you're going to have children. Um... Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of research now about the unhappy outcome for women who have delayed having children because they think that somehow science can wave a magic wand over you when you're 38 and you can you can start raising uh, having a family. For some women that works, but for a vast majority of women that doesn't work. And uh, if you if if family is one of your values, then stick to it. And, and again, I come back to, to my comment earlier about, uh, you know, living your own life and not being a, you know, quote-unquote, don't be a victim. And, uh, and, and I used to say this to folks in the firm, don't talk in code. You know, if, when, I was, when I was a young associate, so I was five years, five years called to the bar, four years called to the bar, I can't remember. Uh, when I had my first daughter, and uh, and I came back to practice, and yeah, there there weren't very many women. In fact, I think I was the only I was the first woman to come back to full time practice in a in a litigation role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, there was lots of hand wringing, and you know, oh my God, what's going to happen? Will she be able to function and all that jazz? And uh, you know, get your job done, and uh, and make sure that you've made the decisions on your family front that work, so that you can get your job done and. and be true to your family, um, and so is it career limiting? Um, well, let's put it this way: you can have it all; you just can't have it all all at once. So understand that if you're going to have children, there will be an impact on your career, and don't be surprised when that happens. So, you know, I was I was absolutely blown away when in in the spring of 1990, when I was seven and a half or eight months pregnant the three most senior members of, of the law firm came in and offered me partnership. I was blown away. I thought I was very, very surprised that they would have done that. Um, and they were equally surprised when I said no. And I said no because 
it wasn't the right thing for me or my family or the firm to accept partnership at that point, and I was totally prepared to defer that part of my career while I focused on my little children. And and we've got to be prepared, I think, as, as women to accept the fact that if we're going to have children, generally in that part of our career, when we are in the early to middle stages of vertical progression, if that's what we're choosing to pursue, that it'll have an impact. Okay, it'll have an impact. That impact will, will be dealt with later on. But if we focus on that and if we make it an issue, I think, it's, I, I, I think it becomes the, the defining part of our careers rather than a normal part of our careers. Now, having said that, um, I'm not so naive as to, uh, as to think that there are not people out there who make decisions about women's progression in a, in a corporate world uh, that don't look at a young woman who's about to have children or has, has started a family and, and said to themselves, gee, maybe we should pass her over. Um, yeah, that happens. That happens. And I think we, um, again, we need to accept the reality that if we choose to have a family, it will have an impact on our career and be upfront about that. Be upfront with the people that we work with that, yeah, I, I have two small children at home, uh, and I am not going to be prepared to travel as much now as I will be in the future, or whatever it is, whatever our decision is. Uh, and my experience has been that if we are upfront and and very adult-like in talking about our family responsibilities and how they fit with our career. You'll be surprised at how adult-like other people will be. And, uh, you know, back to when my children were very young, uh, I made no bones about the fact when I was leaving at 1 o'clock in the afternoon or coming in at 10 in the morning that it was because I was taking my girls to preschool that day or it was the first swimming lesson test and I was going to be there. I didn't say, oh, I have an appointment or I have an engagement. I was totally up front. I, I am not going, I used to say to people, even as a young associate, if you see me here on the weekends, duck. Because I don't want to be here on the weekends. I'm going to be with my kids on the weekend. I'm going to be on the side of the soccer field doing the birthday party thing, etc., etc. I'll work a long day during the week. And, and you know, I, I structured my work hours to, to suit the family uh, and, the, and my career obligations. Um, but I, I made things very clear to my workmates about um, why I was not in when I was not in, not in an apologetic way, but in a very forthright way. And people adapted. So I, I, think, I think these days, if we can be a little bit more deliberate in communicating what we are doing with our family and how that fits in with our uh, with our work obligations and vice versa, things are a lot easier. The second thing I'll say is I do think it helps to have more and more women in senior leadership roles. So when, when you look around the landscape of British Columbia and you see the number of women now that are in CEO roles or in senior vice president roles, uh, it's, it's a significantly greater number than it was back in the 70s and 80s. And I think we bring to the corporate boardroom and to CEO discussions the perspectives I've just talked about. 
and, and I am hopefully not delusional in thinking that that will help slowly but surely change the, the macro perspective of, of women who have children in and who are also destined to be senior leaders. Now, has that impacted uh, you were, um, either here or at PharmaSave in terms of corporate policies relative to job sharing or missing work or flexible work time, you know, the big Yahoo story about no more telecommuting. What's yeah. been your approach yeah. to that as a, from a corporate perspective? Well, I'll tell you, the biggest accommodation that I've ever made in the corporate world was for a guy. Okay. Was for a guy. And it happened at PharmaSave in the first week or two that I was on the job there, and uh, our CFO, phenomenal guy, absolutely phenomenal guy, came in somewhat sheepishly, because he didn't know me very well, to talk about his work arrangement. Single dad, wife died, two small children, I mean very small children, um, young uh, elementary level. And, and he said, look, I, I need flexibility in my work life because I've got my parents taking the kids to school in the morning, but I've made this deal with my parents that I will be there for various points in time, and I'm a single parent in this context. That's just such a no-brainer for me. Of course. Of course we'll accommodate you. You tell me what works for you, and we'll make it work. So, uh, you know, again, we, I think we work ourselves up into a kind of hair-on-fire frenzy as women <laughs> that we're the only ones that need or deserve accommodation. Anybody that's a parent, I don't care what gender you are, probably wants some kind of accommodation. Now, that doesn't mean you can run around and say, you know, it's kind of free work here and show up when it suits you. Uh, but uh, uh, in terms of, quote-unquote, corporate policy, my corporate policy is this. As a leader in a, in a leadership role, if you need something done in your work environment to help you balance both your obligations outside the outside the workplace and your obligations in the workplace, let us know. And I don't care what gender, size, shape, color, age you are, we'll work with you. And if we can find something that works for both of us, great. And if we can't, then someone's gonna have to make a decision. But I, I you know, I don't think I think we overcomplicate these things. Mm -hmm. uh, just a very recent example. My assistant on the weekend uh, sent me a note uh, saying you know, um, it'd be really helpful if I had this kind of uh, computer system uh, because it would allow me to do some things uh, more effectively than I can do now. And I think that was you know, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. She was for some reason checking her email. And uh, it's just like a no. It's like a no-brainer. Of course, you need that. I thought you had it. Sorry, didn't realize you didn't have it. Done. And. And so I think it's a question of the employee that um, has taken a look at their personal and, uh, and career responsibilities and said, you know, life would be a lot uh, more effective and productive and easier for me if I had this rather than that, and comes to the employer and says, here's, here's my life and here's what would work better for me. And an employer that says, wow, you've got a lot to contribute to this organization, let's make it work, it shouldn't be a tough conversation. Now, I appreciate in other roles, if you, are, uh, if you have line responsibility on a, a production line that runs on a shift, if you are a school teacher that has to show up 
to make sure that the children, you have to be there when the children are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a much more difficult scenario than in other work environments. I totally get that, but uh, uh, I think it's our, it's a, it's a dual responsibility for the employee to be clear and deliberate in communicating with the employer about what their needs are and what their expectations and hopes are, and it's an obligation of the employer to listen to those and see if something can come work, something can be worked out. And if it can't be worked out, then somebody has to make a decision. Right. A couple of themes that I'm hearing. Um, one is sort of the importance of people not allowing fear to prevent them from initiating these conversations that you're talking about. Because I think often individuals are fearful to speak up because they think, well, what if? And what I'm hearing you say is just don't let that even come into the sort of the equation. It's back to the victim thing. Right. You know, Roz Coonan, who I've got a ton of time for, is just a phenomenal woman. You know, she has one of her sort of life principles, if you will, don't be a victim. Right. And uh, fear is, is a pretty, you know, useless emotion unless you're being, you know, chased by a grizzly bear in the middle of the bush, <laughs> then it's probably handy because you need that rush of, of whatever happens in your body to get you run fa- to run faster or climb up a tree. Um, but in the workplace, I don't think fear is a particularly productive emotion. No. And, um, and it's probably not a productive emotion outside the workplace either, other than in the scenario I just described. So it's back, you know, don't, don't put yourself in a position where you, where you think of yourself or potentially can be perceived as a victim. Right. Uh, be very clear on what your values are. Be very deliberate in how you live your values. And be very adult-like in, in speaking with your employer about balancing the various demands that you may have on your life. Right, and how I frame that when I'm speaking and writing is about stepping into our power, so how we can step into our power and use that power in order to move away from victimization and say, here's what I need, so that when you frame it as an adult conversation, mm-hmm. I think that's what you're talking about, is mm-hmm. coming and saying, look, here's the reality, and mm-hmm. looking at it from a business perspective, which is what we heard when I talked to Jeanine North in this series. Mm-hmm. She said the same, sort of the same thing, come with sort of the business case, why this is better for me and why this is better for the business. Mm-hmm. So, same conversation. Great. Okay, so talking about sort of power and women and moving into disrespect, which is something that I spend a lot of my time focused on, um, harassment and bullying at work in particular. Mm-hmm. And the, unfortunately, the stats in this area show that women are overwhelmingly targeted mm-hmm. in these kinds of complaints. And when it comes to bullying it's women often bullying other women. And it relates back to sort of the dynamic of power in a big way. Um, And I wonder what your experience has been with these kinds of issues and um, if you have any ideas about how to shift this reality for women who are experiencing this in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So I spent a a good chunk of my career as a lawyer, practicing lawyer, uh, doing investigations into... Mm -hmm. Uh, harassment complaints in the workplace and back uh, back in ancient history I think it was when I was on my third maternity leave I wrote a book on on that um, that very topic because right. it was uh, it was um, very prevalent and and uh, I I am concerned that it still is prevalent um, so in terms of harassment in the workplace uh, women being targeted and, and those issues uh, I actually I actually don't think 
I actually don't think most people get out of bed in the morning determined to make life miserable for the rest of us. Uh, having said that, um, there are some predators out there. There are some people who, for various reasons, whether it's their own personal insecurity or some other peculiar uh, approach, uh, do target others. And in that context, if you are in that scenario, again, um, don't be the victim. In other words, um, don't behave like a victim. If you are being targeted, then take the steps that are uh, that are available to you in your workplace. Or if there aren't steps available to you in your workplace, then go externally. Um, it's it's very very difficult for an employer to address that kind of scenario if they don't know. Um, it's also very difficult, virtually impossible, for an employer to address those kinds of scenarios if you come forward with a complaint uh, but won't allow uh, essential details like your name uh, to come forward because the employer is pretty much handicapped in terms of dealing with it. If you're in a work environment where you feel you are targeted in that regard uh, and the employer uh, either won't or, or uh, chooses not to uh, take steps, uh, you're in the wrong work environment. And, and I know that if you are a single mom uh, responsible for putting food on the table, um, it's pretty um, unrealistic to say walk away uh, from that environment. Uh, but I think you do have to be deliberate about the decisions that you want to make, that you want to take, um, whether it's moving up the food chain in the organization or whether it's uh, finding another place to work that that is a more responsible work environment. I'd like to think that in the 20 years or 10 years, 15 years since I was involved in investigations, I'd like to think that workplaces have progressed, but I'm not, I don't think I'm that naive to think the world's not going to change in 10 or 15 years. You know, it didn't develop in 10 or 15 years, it developed in hundreds of years. So if you're, if you're in the environment where you think you've been targeted, then take the steps deliberately. Deliberately take the steps to address that in the workplace. And I don't mean stand up on, on a table in the middle of the coffee room and point fingers at somebody. <laughs> but engage the, the processes that are in your workplace to address those. And if you're not satisfied with that, decide whether you want to go externally to the commissions and whatnot that deal with these things externally or whether you want to walk away, find a different place to go and work. Uh, but don't don't suffer in silence, and don't become uh, that squeaky wheel. I don't think that's helpful. Um, Sorry, to, what's the squeaky wheel? Well, to to make comments about the work environment that uh, that are not direct or supported by fact. In other words, don't be the person that is. Uh, or believes to be a target of inappropriate uh, conduct in the workplace and not file a formal complaint but speak up at town hall meetings about what ifs and general comments like that because that confuses people. Uh, so be deliberate. If you feel that you have um, and are being treated inappropriately in the workplace, then then employ the channels available to you and you do need a certain level of trust. Um, that your organization will deal with be, deal with it effectively. If you don't trust your organization to deal with it effectively, ask yourself why you're working for that organization. Yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so 
that's that's what I would say about people being targeted. Um, I also would say on the other side of the coin to employers, uh, it is important for employers to relentlessly remind and educate and train all of us about appropriate workplace conduct, to have appropriate policies in place, and to have people that actually know how to address them uh, and that don't treat them as, as window dressing or you know the latest move on political correctness. Uh, and the employer at its highest levels needs to model the right behavior. So if somebody's behaving inappropriately in your presence and you are the uh, chief whatever, chief operating officer, senior vice president of whatever, uh, and you see inappropriate behavior, you inappropriate behavior, you better make sure you act on that because people will be watching. And so there's both sides of that coin. As the person who feels uh, the subject of inappropriate behavior, act on it. And as a leadership team and as, a, as an organization, make sure you have the appropriate policies in place. People who actually know how to uh, implement those policies and act on them when an issue is brought forward and make sure you're modeling the behavior that you talk about. Right. Now, have you seen or experienced any sort of woman-on-woman bullying? Have you, has that been something you've had? Me personally? Yeah. No. Um, but, you know, again, I'll go back to my earlier comment. You know, I don't, I don't look for that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, you know, there was one time, I'm just laughing right now, there was one time back, gosh, when was it? Um, probably in the late 90s when I was becoming uh, a member of, of the senior management of the law firm. And we were trying to do, a few of us women lawyers who were part of, a few of the women partners, we were trying to do things to sort of inspire the young women and all this stuff. And, and hold sessions and bring women clients in and all, you know, all, I think there were four or five of us that were really sort of focused on this all, and we were all very, very well-intentioned. And uh, a wonderful woman, uh, uh, one of our senior staff, one of our uh, management staff, uh, took me aside and said, you know, you better be careful about uh, being so you know, sort of energized around this. And I said, uh, why? She said, well, you know, um, some people might interpret this as, as you trying to do this to look like, you know, you're supporting all these women. I was, I was devastated. You know, I was devastated that, that there was this feeling that this was all done for some kind of personal gratification. And, and it, was the, it was the first time, you can tell the fact that I you know, remember it still, it was the first time that I ever realized that people will interpret your behaviors different than you think they will. Right. And, I, and so I fa- it wasn't bullying, but it was, it was one of those kind of unfortunate um, moments when you realize that perhaps people have interpreted your behaviors differently than you interpret them. Uh, and, and that was sobering, and that was disappointing, that the, the women that I really thought I was trying to support and help and guide actually saw it in quite a different light. The second time was a little bit funnier, and there was a young uh, associate in um, in the firm I was managing partner. She was she was a, a lovely, wonderful, super talented young woman, and I think she was probably I don't know two or three years called like early on in her career, uh, you know, sort of on, you could see on the doorstep of thinking about family and and marriage and all those kinds of things, 
and she came into my office one day, she's a very, very talkative uh, young woman, and she said, I just want to talk to you about, you know, my career, my life, and da-da-da-da, and I said, great, let's, let's talk, I'll listen, you talk, and I said, where do you want to start? She goes, well, I want to start with your, your life, and I said, oh, okay, she goes, I don't want your life, <laughs> and she said it just like that, and I said, well, that's good, I'm glad to hear that, and she she was like shocked. I can still see her face right now. She was shocked. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you shouldn't want my life. You should want your life. So let's talk about what your life is going to be. What do you want? And I went right back to what I talked about earlier this morning. What do you want with your life? And I remember the look on her face was sort of, oh, what an interesting question. And I said, what is it that you want out of your life? Where, where do you see yourself a year from now? three years from now. I don't think ten years out because nobody knows what's going to be. But where do you see yourself next year? Two, three years from now. And you could see the whole, from her body language, I can still see it, um, starting to really get excited about things because I actually actually cared about what she wanted in her life. And we had a great conversation. and, And I have watched her develop over the last 15 or so years. And it's been phenomenal. But I still, I still to this day remember her first comment was, I don't want your life. And I think that's a very important statement and realization for women to have. That uh, it, if you are in the workplace right now and you don't know what you want in the workplace, you are basically setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, you're also potentially setting yourself up for targeting. If you're not deliberate, if you're not clear on what you want, if you don't have a a plan of what you want to do in the workplace and how that fits with your overall life, um, you may find yourself waking up a few years from now wondering why you're so unhappy. Right. Now, in the first situation, when you learned that some people were sort of misinterpreting your intention, what action did you, or what did you do as a result of that? Well, the first thing I did was after after that conversation, it was a wonderful woman that had the conversation, I just love her to death, um, I went for a long walk. You know, I'm a big believer that reacting is generally not something that uh, works well mm-hmm. uh, when, we're, when we are delivered with a uh, difficult message or somebody does or says something to us that uh, is puncturing. Uh, to react in, in probably a visceral way is probably not going to bring out the best result. So I went for a walk, went for a long walk all around through downtown Vancouver. And uh, and just sort of thought it through, you know, what have I done that would bring on that kind of perception? Uh, what's the right thing to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And... Uh, uh, so I went for that walk and uh, and then pulled together a few the the few other women partners in the group of us that had been sort of working on various things and said, look, um, I gather that because I am whatever I was at that point, the, man, the about to be managing partner, uh, and because I tend to be a little talkative and you know I tend to be sort of sometimes you know waving my arms in the air kind of thing uh, in terms of my communication style. I'm not the quiet, shy, retiring type, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I said, you know, I think some people might have thought that this was all uh, more focused on uh, on me than on on the broader group. And uh, so, what do you want to do? And and five for five, uh, I can still remember this. They, they were like, well, "That's crazy. That's just nuts." I said, "Well, no. You know what? It's not nuts because people are actually thinking." That. 
And if, if they are perceiving that, you know, it's the old perception is reality. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I toned down a bit. And, and rather than being, you know, the MC at the women's lawyers, whatever, um, turned it over to the women. And, and actually done a similar thing here in, in a different context, a similar thing here in, in Life Labs in a different context. But uh, say, we said to the women lawyers, I'll just give you an example. We've got, <clears throat> we've got a, I don't know, women lawyers event coming up. And rather than us deciding the issues that we're going to talk about, here, open forum. You guys send questions in. You can send them in anonymously. You can write them on a blank sheet of paper, put them in a brown paper envelope and put it under somebody's door. Or you can send it in via email to whoever, not me, and and we'll deal with these questions. So, so turn it back to the audience and say, what do you want? Right. What do you want out of the environment? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I think that's an important thing to do because as, as leaders, we, we, as no matter how engaging and well-intentioned we are, uh, we always have to remember that s- some people will, will always view us in a vertical way rather than in a, yes. in a horizontal way. So no matter how well-intentioned we may be, people will always look at us as a boss, whether we want them to or not, right? And and I guess that was the biggest revelation to me at that in that discussion at that time when uh, when uh, our senior staff person came in. I thought this is so sad. I just want to be like everybody else, right? And, and she said, "Well, you're not. You're not. And get that out of your head because they're going to look at you in a different light." Yes. And and so turning it back to the audience and saying. What do you want us to talk about? What are the questions that are on your mind rather than us trying to guess that? Bring it forward. And then having the group of five or six or however many it was, women partners, um, share the responsibility rather than me chairing or emceeing right. the discussion. It was a very much broader-based discussion. That's how we Okay. Um, I just want to come back to the idea of building trust because I think you know, you've hit a really important point, which is being in a position of power, being a leader, you are perceived differently and some people will just look at you as the boss. Yeah. So what are the kinds of um, things that you do as a leader to build trust with individuals on your team? Well, um, what people see inside the four walls of the workplace in me is no different than what you see outside. The one thing I will say, I do say to people here, in some sort of humorous, is you may find it you may find it challenging to work with me. Just be glad you don't live with me. <laughs> and uh, you can talk to my kids about that one, uh, and my husband, because and, and I believe that. You know, I mean, it's my my family has a very tough road to hoe having me in the in the crowd. Um, they probably got more stories than I have on that one. Uh, but um, so a number of things. One, um, trying to get to know each other as people rather than as positions. Okay. So so very um, intentionally, and this is with my um, direct team, so the executive team, um, very intentionally having situations, whether they are formally organized, you know, sort of off-site meetings, or whether it's even in the day-to-day. Uh, milieu in the office being quote unquote very human so not being always you know dialed in to the workplace but uh, but honestly talking about 
what happened on the weekend or you know what I actually do have to leave today because of such and such and such and such. Just like I said, you know, 25 years mm-hmm. ago when there was a, you know, preschool event or whatever it may be. Um, same sort of thing today. Uh, being very, very transparent in terms of who I am as a person inside and outside. And encouraging without requiring people to do the same. In other words, don't expect everybody else to open up their personal vault just because you feel comfortable doing that. Uh, and being very alive to the fact that People shouldn't feel pressured in doing that uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but but trying to be um, um, not just the CEO in the workplace, but actually being Sue in the workplace, um, <coughs> and excuse me, creating an environment where we can share who we are as people and and learning to um, understand each other as people, not just as positions. I think that's really important. Um, being um, grateful and um, and being grateful for all the little things. So if I see or experience or learn about something that someone has done, um, I will send an, an email or I'll go and find them if I can find them. Um, the latter is being a little bit a little bit more difficult because. Nine times out of ten, they're in another part of the country than I am at that particular point. But, you know, I'll quite often send an email out saying, um, gee, now this is amazing, I just heard about this. And and I don't know if that helps, but I'd like to think it helps. Um, and inviting people to to deal with me directly without, without in any way um, upsetting or going around the appropriate, you know, chains of command that you need to have in a business, but saying to people, look... Um, you know, if there's something you want to talk to me about, talk to me about it. And then I engage their other leaders in their workplace. But being available, uh, I think, is really important. Um, you know, I'd have to I'd have to say trying to model the kind of behavior that that I want everybody else to model is probably the biggest thing. And uh, you know, don't get too excited about the highs and don't get too freaked out about the lows. And uh, and I think that's another really important thing, and and being vulnerable, you know, I make I make mistakes, I make lots of mistakes, gosh, I make mistakes all the time, and I own up to them. And when I make a mistake, um, that's that's my mistake. I never blame it on, you know, I never blame it on Air Canada or the weather <laughs> or something, you know, in the workplace, and never blame it on someone. I think that's important uh, as well. So being available, being human, giving people the opportunity to, to be likewise, um, uh, being very open to receiving communications, uh, owning mistakes, never ever project blame onto anyone. And I, I guess the last thing would be to have fun. I've got three principles in, in any job that I've ever had. I have to bring value. I have to feel valued, and I have to have fun. And if any one of those three is missing, I'm out of here. And we have a lot of fun around here. Um, and, and it's not you know, just the organized events that we have. We actually enjoy each other's company. And I think that's important. Absolutely. 
So my last question just has to do with, um, although you've already given us so much great information that I could summarize, but if you were going to speak to a group of male CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, what would you most like to say to them around the topic we've been discussing today? And then if you could speak to a group of ambitious Gen Y women, women, what would you most like to say to them? Which topic? Which topic? Uh, Just the sort of leadership, gender. Okay. Be the same flexibility. Message. Be the same message to both of them. Okay. Actually, uh, I guess I think it's sort of opposite ends of the same question, same topic. Uh, there are phenomenal opportunities for us as CEOs to uh, bring forward talent, potential, um, inspiration from people in our workplace, regardless of size, shape, gender, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, etc., etc. Let's be blind to the demographics of our workplace in the context of people's potential. We obviously have to be alive to demographics in terms of career planning and things like that. Um, But let's uh, let's make sure that we build workplaces where, um, where People know that we're organizations that are based on values. We are actually values-based organizations, values-based leadership teams, and that we create work environments where uh, people are encouraged to decide what they want in their lives and to articulate to us in whatever way, shape, or form is appropriate in our organization what those career aspirations are, are without all of them having to be vertical mm-hmm. and that we build workplaces where we actually help people realize their uh, career ambitions in a way that works for them and for us as an organization and I'd say exactly the same thing to, the, to, to young women actually I was just speaking to a group of I think they were 17 and 18 year olds on Friday in a some kind of I don't know, high performance <laughs> camp or something that they run out at UBC. Actually, it's a pretty cool group. And I said, exactly. I said, decide what you want in your life. And when you're 18, don't assume that you're going to know what you're going to be doing when you're 30. Because very few of us are doing the same thing at 30 that we thought we'd be doing when we were 18. Uh, but decide at a, at a, in a short-term way, at least, what your values are. Uh, live those values. Be deliberate. And take responsibility for your own life. Don't ever be a victim, and instead be that person that's easy to trust, easy to work with, and and easy to get along with in in a whole host of contexts. And uh, make sure that you understand that every decision has a consequence. And when you make decisions about family, about community, about personal aspirations, about career aspirations, it will impact the other parts of your life. And don't be apologetic for that. Own it own your decision and make sure the decisions are yours. It works, I think. Great. Well, I have a 17-year-old. <laughs> Perfect advice for her. Oh, yeah. And never let, never, ever let the teenagers get you to make the decisions for them. I have, I, I have 20-year-olds, right? My kids are all in their 20s. And, and not infrequently in the last five years or so, you get the question, well, well, mom, what do you think I should do? What do you, what courses do you think I should take? What university do you think I should go to? You should go to the one that makes sense for you. You should take the courses that work for you. 
Well, what do you want to do? Well, no, that's not what I asked you. I know that's not what you asked, <laughs> but it's your decision, mm-hmm. not mine. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's exact. That's a classic example of the of the kind of behaviors that we, as whether we're business leaders or parents, I think is helpful to model is helping people make and own their decisions, and not Absolutely. make those decisions for them, because then it becomes our responsibility, not theirs. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been an enlightening, inspiring, and completely informative and fascinating interview for me and I know for everybody that will hear and read it. So thank you again for making the time to be with us today and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation at some point. Thank you and thanks for doing this kind of series. I think uh, hopefully the audience uh, gets some perspective from, I'm sure you're talking to lots of uh, really interesting women and, and I think we are blessed in Vancouver and British Columbia to have phenomenal women leaders in in a variety of sectors and contexts. So I would hopefully agree. you've got good, a, good, a good list of people to talk to. Thanks Absolutely. a lot. Thank you.